Welcome back to the Samantha Show. I'm your host, Samantha, or you can call me Sam. Just don't call me Sammy. And today is really exciting because I have my first ever podcast guest. I call her mom, but professionally known as Mrs. Grace Curtis. Mom, thank you for joining. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I think. <laughs> I I love that. I can pull my mother into all of my antics and crazy ideas constantly. <laughs> Mom, do you remember when you did trampoline fitness with me and then you broke your ankle? Oh, yeah, I do. I <laughs> Well, How hopefully can I not. Yeah. Hopefully this podcast doesn't end up in quite the same way, but um I know that I've invited you on here today because I'm always so in all of your stories that you have shared. And I know you've shared so many really cool stories with me growing up. There's one particular story that I really love that I wanted to bring you on to share, but really, I just want to highlight your sense of adventure and some of the life that you have lived and, you know, telling some of my friends and new podcast listeners, uh, just a little bit about your life and some of that fun adventure that you've had. But to start us off here, can you just share a little bit? I mean, I know you're, you're where you're from, where we're from, but just a little bit about where you grew up and uh, just a little bit of background information on you. Okay. Well, I grew up in East Dayton for the most part. And when I was 15, I moved to New Carlisle, Ohio, and I got to really experience uh, rural life in a big way. My parents had a big garden. And so I was kind of half city, half rural at that point. And that's kind of what informs sort of my interest in a lot of ways as well. Then I went to college right out of high school when I graduated in 1969. And I graduated from Bethel College in Mishawaka, Indiana, in 1973. From there, I taught school. So, And you taught school in Indiana, right? right, what, right, subject, right. what subject grade did you teach? I taught high school, 11th grade English, speech and drama. And with that came directing the high school plays. And that was really the highlight of teaching for me. Was there a particular play you really enjoyed or that you remember? Well, I did two that year. I only taught for a year. I, I did uh, Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology, and we did it in sort of an avant-garde kind of way, and it got really a lot of accolades. We had a real kind of sparse stage, and those are a series sort of a prose poems, and the students just did a phenomenal job with them with limited props. And then we did one called uh, Don't Drink the Water, which was a comedy. And that was a lot of fun as well. But those were the plays that I directed that year. Was there always kind of a, a focus and an interest with poetry when you were teaching or just kind of around that play specifically? Well, there was an interest in poetry from the time I was a child. I remember the first poem I wrote, which was, of course, a love poem, a very ridiculous love poem in the sixth grade. I ran home. 
home and showed it to my mom. Of course, you know what that I know about love, but you know, it was, and she just, of course, said it was wonderful. <laughs> but from there, I just, I really have always loved literature and poetry, especially. And throughout that time, I wrote silly, you know, poems, children's style poems. So I know you Utah and Indiana, but I want to take our story to your uh, adventures that start out on the West Coast. So you ended up moving out to California. What took you out to California from Indiana? Well, my husband, who was my husband at the time, he joined the Air Force. So he was transferred to, after his basic training, he was transferred to Edwards Air Force Base in uh, near Lancaster, California, which is just northeast of Los Angeles. So we moved out there with him. And while I was out there, we got a divorce and I moved to Los Angeles on my own at that point. That would have been around 1975, maybe six, that time frame. I just, I see a lot of similarities in our stories, mom, because I moved to Florida with a boy. It ends up not working out, but I stay there. You moved to California with a man. It ends up not working out. So, uh, but now you're in LA and how are you making money? So you, you, you move out there. What did you do for work? Well, at the time, Los Angeles school systems were not giving out any permanent contracts because, believe it or not, at that point, there was a glut of teachers. And so it was really difficult to get a full-time teaching job. So I substitute taught, but there was such a need for substitutes that I literally went to school every day and just got assigned once I got there to high schools and junior highs. So I made money doing that. I also made money with a gig that I got cooking for an elderly couple in Pasadena. And I would go in at four o'clock after school, make their dinner, you know, and then they actually had staff that would clean up the dishes and stuff. So I didn't even have to do that. I just made the dinners. I could eat whatever I made in the kitchen (laughs) when they ate in the dining room. So I ate well, but I made a little money doing that as well. So that's how I made money in California. Wow. Very cool. So, so you have these gigs, you have this gig and you're also substitute teaching. Can you tell me a little bit about how you get involved or what an encounter group is, which I heard for the first time yesterday when we were talking? Well, summer came, so there was no more substitute teaching jobs. And I was kind of footloose and fancy free, made a little money. You know, my apartment was only $125 at the time. It was an adorable apartment, but I was just young and exploring, you know, my options and looking around. And so this opportunity came up to attend what's called an encounter group. They were popular during the 70s. They were started by a very famous psychologist, the father of talk therapy, supposedly Carl Rogers. And the idea was that you would gather in small groups and spend so much time together in just open discussion, and there was a facilitator involved as well, that emotions and prejudices and thoughts and so forth would emerge. And sometimes the group would call you out on it, but there was not hostility in the group. It was an open, caring environment where you could explore was the idea behind it. I signed up for and attended this 17-day encounter group at the University of San Diego. I found it extremely helpful to me as a young person at that time. 
Absolutely. So I'm asking you about this encounter group because I know it kind of leads to your next big move. So you end up moving from California down to Florida, Key West. How did you make that move? How did you get there? Well, you know, naturally in close quarters and with, uh, you know, close emotional exposure, you begin to develop relationships with people. And one of the people I made a relationship with, Bill Schwartz, was uh, from Florida and, and from San Diego most of the time, but he had a boat in, Cal- in Florida at Key West, knowing, you know, through the course of this discovery period that I really didn't have anything going on. He asked if I would be interested in house-sitting his boat in, in Key West, well, you know, he flew me to California, to Florida from California, and off I went to live on this boat in, in Key West. And I had no idea where it would go from there. What kind of boat? You had told me a little bit about the boat. Tell me again what kind of boat this was and, and what that looks like or what that means. I'm not privy to yeah. the boats. Yeah, it's a trimer. It was a trimaran, which is a three-hulled boat. There's a main hull in the middle. And then there are two hulls that go off to the side, depending on the length of the boat and the size of the boat. It can be uh, a very large area on those side pontoons or a small area. And I think in that particular boat, it was a 40-foot trimaran. And then usually between those pontoons and the main hull, there is like netting. And that was kind of cool because when you sail in it, you can kind of lay in that netting. And sometimes dolphins would come up underneath that and you could just be like, you know, looking downward onto these dolphins who are who are swimming along with the sailboat. So that was a pretty, pretty nice setup. You know, I, I lived on this boat, it was adequate size for me. And so that's how I got to Key West. And that was the kind of boat that I was living on at the time. He didn't pay you though to house to boat sit, right? To or to stay on his boat sit. Is that a thing? To 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 take care of his boat. So you had to get other gigs, sure. jobs? Sure. I had to work in Key West just to get money to eat and to live and so forth. You know, rent was free, of course, because I was house sitting and, uh, you know, there were showers at the marina and stuff. So, it, you know, it was a little bit rough, but it was still sort of, you know, I'm 26 years old. So what difference did it make to me, you know, at the time? Uh, and you worked like, is this when you, you were telling me that you had worked like lunch shift, dinner shift? bar shift. No, no, that was, that that was a little bit later. While I was in Key West, you know, some things happened with Bill and he was going to lose the boat. And so I had to, to make some alternate plans to live somewhere. In the meantime, you know, people sail in and out of those marinas. uh, And this, another trimaran, another 40 foot trimaran that was built by uh, someone from Vancouver, British Columbia, had come into the marina and I got to know the owner of that boat, Tony. And he asked me if I wanted to sail for a while. He needed a second mate. And I'm like, I don't know what that means exactly, but yeah, I'll do it. (laughs) So we had also met another boat and spent a lot of time with a larger boat called Wonderlust, who had come around from San Francisco. And it was a 60 foot trimaran, like a floating hotel, really 
sleeps 26 and so forth. Just a gorgeous uh, boat. And they were provisioning to go over to the American Virgin Islands to run charters out of uh, St. Thomas. So we got to know them. And then I got to know Tony real well. So Tony asked me if I wanted to go with him. He said, what we'll do is we'll go up to Miami. We'll both work for a while, save up money, and then we'll take off and sail through the Caribbean and island hot, basically. So, and I we had no idea where it would end up or where we would, when we would end it, or, you know, if we would even be compatible enough to sail together. And, uh, but that's what we did. So on Christmas day, we came up the intercoastal waterway and docked in Miami. And that's when you started your hustle? Yes. That's when I really hustled. I worked, I would go to work at 11 at the Miami Marina and work at Le Joint, do the lunch crowd. Then I would take a short break and rest a little bit. And then I would go upstairs and work alongside the professional waiters at a place called the Green Dolphin. And I learned a lot about waiting tables from these people. After that, I would go back down to La Joint, which became kind of a disco at night. And I would cocktail wait until two or three in the morning, get a cab back to the boat, stumble onto the boat, dead tired, get up and go back to work at 11 the next day. So that was wow, sort of- how long did you how long did you do that? Well, not that long, maybe six, seven weeks, something okay. like that. But I made a lot. I was making good money at that point, good money for that time. Yeah. And was able to save up enough so that by mid by late February, we could pull out and begin cruising through the, the Caribbean. I feel like I can pick up the story here because I have read all of your <laughs> daily logs. So I'm really impressed. My my mom had kept really, really great daily logs every single day out at sea. And I know, mom, you've been working on transcribing those. And I, I really found it fascinating to read what you wrote every single day. Um, but to summarize, what what was it like once you took off and you started your adventure? It was interesting. When we first left Miami, we took on some people who had come from Vancouver to sail with Tony for a while, some friends of his. And just wonderful people that I got to know and enjoy and hang out with. And we had some birthday parties on board. And first night we left during the night because we wanted to cruise through the night so that it would, the sun wouldn't be as hot. And it would also ensure that by morning, we were looking for land and not looking for landfall at night. So if oh, we had left sure. during the morning, we had not gotten to Bimini, which is the closest point to Miami in the Bahamas. So we crossed the Gulf Stream, which is a little daunting to me. And I actually had to take watch and we weren't under sail. So that was good. We were motoring. And that was good because it's easier to keep it on course if you're just motoring and you're just following the compass, you know. So I had to take watch and that was felt like an enormous enormous responsibility to me. Everybody else is asleep and I'm out on the ocean by myself. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Wait. So I didn't realize this. So, and you, were you following a compass or was there a digital, like telling you where to go? You're, you're like following. 
that boat did not have all of the uh, equipment on it, which was partially, you know, all of the electronic equipment, the Lorans and so forth and the radar and all that. So we are just literally, you get on a compass heading, you know, it's all charted out, you know, what heading you're supposed to, to get on and stay on to hit landfall in the Bahamas. And I mean, if you don't, you're going, you're going out into the Atlantic. Oh my gosh. No, thank you. I'm not even, I'm not even go to the grocery store without ways on. So <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So I'm, I, and the compass sits there by the wheel and it, you know, it's sort of like, you know, moving and you're just having to watch that compass and make sure you know, that you're staying on the right heading that you're supposed to be on. And you know what that heading is before you kind of take your watch. Wow. Uh, That's crazy. And you ate a lot of, I remember seeing from your journal entries, conch. Is that how you say that? Conch. Conch. Okay. Conch. Conch. I have never heard of that. Can you describe what that is for someone who has no idea? Conch is a big pink shell. It's the classic Florida shell. You know, it's large. And it's a mollusk or a like, yeah, I guess that's what you would call it. It, it to me, it's a little bit like eating a very, very firm clam. I wondered um, if it was similar yeah. to that. And what they do is they take like a little wedge thing, owl, and they, they grab a hold of the foot, which is a big piece of the clam that sticks out or the conch that sticks. You hammer a hole into the shell. That's why you'll often see the shells with holes in them. That's the only way to get the animal out. It breaks the shells. It breaks the animal suction. And then you pull it out with pliers. And then it's this, it's got this heavy skin on it. And you slice that skin. And literally people often will use their teeth to pull the skin off, <laughs> off of the shell. You can't make the- a face because I saw in your notes that you did that I, with your t- own teeth. Yeah, right. <laughs> Off of the meat, you know, it, that's the only way you can get to the meat. And then you dice the meat up. You can make a ceviche out of it, which is, that actually is really good. It's basically letting it cook in lime juice and that kind of thing. So it's it's not, it's very good. And, and we made conch fritters and all kinds of things with it. So now that we kind of understand the life you were living down there, you end up eventually in St. Thomas, correct? And so Tony and I had, you know, island hopped all around the Bahamas. We hit Haiti, uh, spent a few days in Haiti, which was just a, an unbelievable experience. Then we went to Dominican Republic, and then we went to Puerto Rico for a little while and eventually made our way to St. Thomas. And by then I was feeling, you know, it was a couple months or so around that time. I was feeling like it was time for me to to head home. I needed to go home. Home back to Ohio. Back to Ohio. You know, I I thought, where is this going? We read constantly, but really on the boat, that's what you do. You know, boats would pass each other and we would throw books back and forth to each other because you read everything online or on boat on board. Yeah. In fact, I read David Copperfield aloud at night, you know, for entertainment. So we got to St. Thomas. And I mentioned the boat Wonderlust, which was this big 60 foot trimaran, 
who was chartering out of St. Thomas. And Richard, the captain, greeted us and said he had a charter coming up and asked if I would be willing to cook for this charter. He just started his business there, so he didn't have a lot of crew. There was only one other person on board on the 60-foot trimaran. And uh, so he asked me if I would be willing to do the cooking on this. And I said, sure, because he knew I had cooked in California for this couple. I had oh, told right. him that before. So he felt like that qualified me <laughs> to, to cook on this boat. And it turns out that the charter was for the road managers for Paul McCartney and Linda and their band wings. And they were the advance team that would come in and say, you know, here's where we're headed next. And here's what we're doing and yada, yada, yada. So apparently wings was recording an album in St. John's, which is one of the Virgin Islands. So he asked me if I would cook for this group. And I was like, okay, because Paul and Linda and the band Wings was recording some songs on another boat that was already docked in this bay in St. John's. So Richard and I had like a couple of hours to provision the boat with food and all that kind of thing. So I I went shopping with him and we bought all this food and stuff and put it on board. And then we sailed out to where the ships were, the boats were. Uh, They were large boats. One was set up as a recording studio and the crew stayed on it. And then there, there were actually two. One was set up as a recording studio. The band and the crew stayed on that one, recording crew. And then one boat, Linda and Paul and Stella, Mary, Heather were on board that one. Very cool. So already a very awesome opportunity. It sounds like experience to get to be a part of. Yes, uh, indeed. I thought, well, there might be a chance that I would get to meet them. And actually, so we pull in and here comes this dinghy loaded with their family and Paul and Linda toward the sailboat. And Richard tells me that they're going to move on to the sailboat with us. So I would be your boat that you're on our boat and their crew, that staff that we originally thought the charter was for was going to move, move on to their boat. So here I am. I'm supposed to now cook for Paul and Linda and Stella and Mary and Heather. I was like, (laughs) I'm 26 years old. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, the only thing I know about cooking is my good old German mom's cooking. Oh, you're the best cook ever though. I can say that. So did, but okay. Do you remember when you first said hello or met Paul and Linda? Do you remember that? Were they like getting on the boat? Yeah, they were getting on the boat and they were really gracious. Just, just, as, and the girls were just as sweet as they could be. I mean, they were just all giggly and it's a beautiful, beautiful boat. It still is in St. Thomas chartering. So you can get that boat now and charter it. And maybe we'll do that. Sometime. I was going to say, mom, this sounds like a trip we need Down to memory. do. Yeah, yeah right. Well, anyway, uh, you know, I didn't get to see them a lot because they were still recording. So they were on the other boat a a good bit of the time, but the girls stayed on the sailboat. So Richard and I, it was Richard Cal and I on board and Richard and and Richard and I uh, took the girls swimming and we took them onto the island and really just kind of hung out with Stella and Mary and uh, Heather was a little bit older 
and don't recall that she was with us all of that much, but it, certainly Stella and Mary were young. Stella maybe was only four at the time and Mary maybe seven or eight. I don't know. I There was difference. So not only did you get to cook for the family, Paul and Linda, but you got to babysit the kids too. Yes. Wow. And that was sort of fun. You know, that was really fun. We had a good time with them and they were so adventurous and, you know, just having a good time. The thing was they would record until two in the morning and then went to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was making food in the middle of the night. Did they request specific food or was it whatever well, you had? Well, to a certain extent. I mean, we were eating a lot of fish. Yeah. I, I don't remember that much. I remember that they brought a box of oranges and they wanted fresh squeezed orange juice in the morning. And I said, Richard, we don't have we don't have one of those things to get juice from the oranges. And so <laughs> Richard and I are trying to, you know, squeeze these oranges by hand and create just some, make it happen. Make it, it was kind of like make it happen, Grace. <laughs> yeah. You got a so. box of oranges, you make orange juice. So tell us a little bit towards the end of the trip. I know you you talked about a release party and getting to hear some of the first cut of London Town and from Wings and what that was kind of like. Yeah, well, that was the, the very end of their recording when we got there. And that's why their managers had come. And so on the Friday night, they had a party on board the recording boat. And they were playing and listening to the raw cuts from their month of recording in this on this island in this island area. So that was really awesome. I got to they invited us to come over and we went over and I just had a great time. I remember uh, we all took turns being like swung overboard and dumped into the ocean. And, and it was at night and I did not like swimming much at all. I, I did it all the time. But to go in at night was like not my favorite thing, but we went, we went along with it and we got thrown overboard and climbed back up. You know, everybody was just sort of having a good time. They were releasing a lot of energy because they had recorded and worked so hard during that time. Wow. Very so, cool. So you, you heard it first. So anytime you hear Before it was on the album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So later, years later, or a couple years later, when the album came out or a year later, I bought it. I have it. I still have it. That's pretty wild. That's amazing. I, I don't know. I just think it's, I think it's a really cool story. And um, the last gig really before you decided to head home, right? Right. When I arrived in St. Thomas, I realized I was, I had been realizing it was time to go home. It, I needed a more stable lifestyle. I needed, this didn't seem like it was particularly going anywhere. And, you know, I'm a pretty ambitious person and I felt like it, I need to go home. And, you know, my family hadn't seen me in a long time and they were, you know, uh, somewhat worried. <laughs> right. Because your only communication with your parents, your mom, grandma, and was letters, right? Right, right. Letters yeah. that that had to be mailed to General Delivery St. Thomas Post Office because I had no address, and you you just have to stop at the post office now and then and say, "Are there any letters here for me?" And they would look through all their general delivery, and if there was a letter that you know addressed to Grace Curtis, they would pull it out. So, wow. okay, so. You're, you're 
your work is complete. You're at this gig with uh, the band. And uh, did you end up going home then? So I went back and spent a few more days uh, on Wonderlust and uh, got a flight home, made enough on that charter with Richard to pay for my flight home and flew home to Ohio at that point. And I was maybe 27 at that then or 28 at that point. And you you came home with what one bag? Did you have anything? A small bag. I only had bathing suits. <laughs> maybe one pair of pants that were appropriate for a plane. <laughs> Mom, I'm home. Here are my swimsuits. And you made swimsuits, right? We were talking. I did. I did. I, swimsuits. Yeah. Wow. Out of t-shirts, you know, by hand, stitching by hand. You become very resourceful on a This boat. is where you've, yeah, this is where all the, um, and you guys made a lot of your clothes then once you returned oh, home. We did. My mom and I got busy. I, I was looking madly for a job, you know, job hunting. And uh, I didn't want to live at home. After you've lived like that, it's hard to <laughs> go home. <laughs> I so, think it would be a big shock to go from that life back was. to the Midwest at home with your parents. So is this where you kind of started your career? I know you eventually ended up going back to school to get your master's. What kind of led to that? Yeah, I, I went to work. I did find a job pretty quickly as a copywriter for uh, Robinson Myers, which is a big capital goods manufacturers. They make pumps and so forth. And I got a job as a copywriter for them and eventually worked my way into being their marketing manager. And I really fell in love with business. So I decided to get an MBA. And so in 80, 1980, I went back to Wright State and got my MBA. Met your dad. I was going to say that's, <laughs> and then this is where dad comes into the picture. And maybe we can share that story another day. But yeah. um, so, and then you eventually ended up working, you know, for one of our major hospital systems in the area. And is, did that happen when you were in graduate school? Well, I worked, uh, I was actually a graduate assistant for a professor named Venkatesan. And he, he was doing a lot of consulting with some of the hospitals in town. And he had a job with Grandview Hospital and asked me to assist in that job with him. And so I got to know some of the people at Grandview and interviewed there and got a job at, in their marketing department and eventually became the director of marketing at Grandview. And then eventually when they merged with Kettering Health Network, I uh, took on a director role at the network level. So I was there for over 30 years in, right. from Kettering, uh, from Grandview up through the Kettering Health Network. Amazing. And uh, I know you, you really loved your career and you did a lot of great work and, and, um, you know, were very successful, but I know that you still have that creative side. And, and so you got back into writing later and on in the career. So can you just kind of tell us how you kind of got back then into that creative outlet? Well, in 2005, you graduated. And so I, you know, we were being, you know, empty nesters at that point. And one day I just sat down, I was getting dressed for work and this line of poetry came to me and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what that is. I didn't know where it came from. I wrote it down and I sat there a bit longer and wrote more and more lines. And suddenly before I knew it, I had a poem. I mean, not a good one, but (laughs) I had a poem and I was better than the sixth grade love poem. I'm not sure. About that. <laughs> I just fell in love with poetry at that point all over again. And I just started 
coming. I rushed home that night, worked on it, edited it. I wrote some more. I wrote, I just kept writing and kept writing. Then in 2008 said, I want to get an an MFA in poetry. And so I went to a low resident MFA program at Ashland University. So most of that was online while I was still working. And then I graduated in 2010. So, and now you actually have, you actually have a couple books published. I do. I got the first book published in, uh, well, the first one actually in 2010, won a book, a small chat book, which is just a, a much smaller part of a collection. And then I published a full length collection in 2014. And then a second one in 2019, maybe 2018. 2018. Are these still out there that people can purchase and get? They're on Amazon for one thing. And they are also, you could purchase them from the publisher, which is Dos Madres out of Cincinnati. Pretty amazing. I, I, you know, and this, I know from talking to you, like, it's just, it's the tip of the iceberg of the stories that you have that are just so amazing. I'll I'll never forget, mom, there was one time when you came to visit me in Florida and we went on that bike ride and you had just shared so much. And then also too, when we took our trip to Nashville, you had shared a lot of stories then. And I just, I don't know, I I live vicariously or here, or maybe it's just because I know you as my mom who sits at home in the office and (laughs) gardens and had this this wild, adventurous life, which I just think is really amazing. Um, I know, you know, my last podcast episode, I talked a lot about timing and uh, there's obviously a lot of like connections to timing and how things worked out in this situation for you and the story that you shared. But there was one other story that you had shared with me about timing and and kind of, I I, I don't know if I'd call it divine intervention or what, but, uh, but something really unique worked out. Do you mind sharing that story? Uh, No, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I'm not really what you would call a super spiritual type person that believes in, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. But I also think it's important to sort of respond to what maybe what your psyche or your head is telling you to do at the time. And when I was in California and living on my own and just, you know, really, I mean, living hand to mouth and almost you know, I had an apartment, but, you know, and I was able to eat and all that, but I was still feeling pretty destitute if something, something happened to my car and I couldn't get it fixed and that kind of thing, because I didn't have the money. So I went to a flea market with a friend and they, I saw this big wooden, I was trying to put a few pieces in my little apartment. And there was this big wooden spool that the kind that cable layers use to wrap cable around that lay out along the road when they're putting up telephone lines and so forth. And at that time, they were wood. So my friend said, Oh, that would make a great coffee table. And I looked at it. And on top, it said, please return to Portsmouth, Indiana. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, I know someone in Portsmouth. So I had to have that. And I brought that home. And I looked at that. And I kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking, I'm going to call that person that I know in Portsmouth, which had been a past boss of mine. So I called him up. Here he was financially destitute. He said, Oh, my gosh, Grace, I have been trying and trying to figure out how to get a hold of you. I have a check up for your last few days of work that I owe you of $600. And I was like, I was in shock because I needed that money so desperately. And that was a lot of money back then in the mid seventies. And 
So he mailed me the check immediately. And I was just, I was able to get my car fixed and, you know, kind of pay my rent and so forth. So that was pretty awesome. But to me, that was keeping myself open, you know, also coming home when I came home from the Caribbean, knowing that that timing was right. I mean, I wasn't planning my life very well at all during that time. But I think at least I was open to what my heart was telling me I needed to do at that moment. I feel that I relate to that very, very much. So, well, thank you so much for sharing, mom, for again, going along with all of my great ideas (laughs) that I have, this, that, and the other. Um, I asked, I left, you know, on my pages and pages of notes for you, I had finished with, you know, if there is anything you could offer, you've lived this life of adventure. You have an incredibly successful career, two master's degree, you've published books. You're the best Grammy that any little baby could ever, ever want. So do you have any like words of wisdom or advice, or if you could share anything uh, on a platform and just offer one thing to to people who may be listening. Do do you have anything? Well, maybe, you know, what we've talked about of trying to be open to what your heart tells you. And I think also, you know, going along with that, finding what really brings you joy in life and really focusing. You may not be able to quit a, a job that's paying the bills to focus on what brings joy to you. But I wrote poetry for a long time after work and on weekends. And until I felt like, you know, I was in a position to really write more fully every day. And I think focusing on what brings you joy in life and then being open to opportunities as they come along is what I would recommend. I think it's great. That's why I try new things every single week. I'm just trying to find that passion. You will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thanks again, mom, Grace Curtis, uh, by name. I I really do appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening here to episode three. I hope you had a great Mother's Day, uh, whether you celebrated with your mother, um, if you are a mother in memory of your mother or all of the above. So thank you guys so much. I'm looking forward to releasing episode four next week. Tune back in. Have a great day. You deserve it.